This is Archbishop Blaise Supich, Archbishop of Chicago. Today, I invite you to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a non-for-profit apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization that utilizes media, both old and new, to share the faith on every continent and facilitate an encounter with Christ in His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. This is an invitation to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. When our hearts are open, the Lord changes and transforms us so that we in turn begin to share the warmth and light of Jesus Christ, who is the Word on Fire. The global benefactors of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you, and happy Solemnity of Pentecost, one of the really great feast days of the Christian year, the Feast of the Holy Spirit. Our first reading, everybody, from the Acts of the Apostles conveys the unforgettable excitement of the first Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit into the life of the church. We hear of the wind and the tongues of fire, but what's always struck me as the most extraordinary, mysterious, and moving is the gift of tongues. The ability that these Galilean fishermen suddenly had to speak in a variety of foreign languages. I've always been fascinated by language. My own native language, English, is, of course, an infinite ocean of meaning, nuance, expressiveness, delicacy, strength. But so is every other language. Whenever you you dive into a language, you dive into the same kind of ocean of meaning and complexity and overtone and undertone. The first foreign language I ever studied, I was, what, 14. The prompting of my father was Latin. I took Latin when I was in high school. It took over four years. We weren't doing a lot of conversing in Latin. You don't have a language lab in Latin. But it gave me my first taste of the structure and harmony and rhythm and peculiar logic of a new language. It also thereby opened a door to an entirely other world. The world of ancient Rome, of Caesar and Anthony, of Virgil and Livy. But also the world of ordinary agricolae, right? Farmers, that's the very first word I learned in a foreign language, agricola. It's peculiar because it's a, a feminine in form but masculine in gender. But agricola, farmer, is the first word I ever learned. When you learn Latin, though, you're open to the world that, that ancient farmers in Italy spoke. Also, as a Catholic, you know, Latin opens you to the world of Thomas Aquinas, to the world of Augustine, to the world of Anselm, the great scholastic theologians. Well, Latin led me in time to French and Spanish and German and Italian and Greek, all of which I've studied formally and learned to 
varying degrees. I mean, I'm no Carl Wojtyla. I'm not that type that can just speak eight languages fluently. I was with Cardinal O'Malley of Boston just recently, and he's someone who's got that. He can speak eight languages pretty fluently. I've learned all these to varying degrees. Remember when I first learned Spanish? It was 1983. I moved in with a wonderful family in Humboldt Park neighborhood in Chicago, a family called the Iglesias. They were refugees from Castro's Cuba. They come to Chicago and they spoke very little English, just a few words really. So it was a, a total immersion, even though I wasn't too far away from home. Remember the first morning I was with them, literally gesturing to get my food in the morning. I didn't know the words to ask for the cereal or milk. By the end of that summer program, I was actually not bad with Spanish. We ate during those weeks uh, Cuban food, listened to Guatemalan music, we enjoyed Mexican dancing, but there was no more dramatic immersion in the Hispanic world than the plunge into the ocean of the Spanish language. And again, really, I just sort of dipped my toes in it. I mean, I shouldn't say plunge. I didn't get that deeply into it. But it was the opening of a door, anyway, into this new world. French is the foreign language that I know the best because I lived and studied for three years in Paris. I first studied French when I was in college and then uh, informally with a, a lovely retired lady who was a native French speaker. She's from Belgium. She was a war bride, came over to the States. I knew her when she was in her 60s. Her husband had just died. And when I was in Park Ridge getting ready to go to Paris, I used to meet with her every Saturday. We'd have lunch together. We'd speak French. And even with all that background, I remember distinctly the first time I, I sat around a dinner table in my new house in Paris, and I didn't understand one word. <laughs> I probably was jet-lagged and a little bit in shock, but didn't get one word. But, you know, in time, living there and through a lot of study, a lot of making mistakes, I came to penetrate the fog. In fact, the French have a lovely expression. When you're learning and you're kind of getting better, you say, je me débrouille. I defog myself. <laughs> so I move my way through the fog, the linguistic fog, and man, talk about entering a new world. Talk about a world of nuance and subtlety and shades of meaning when you enter the world of the French language. I'll give you one detail. I remember distinctly my, my great thesis director, Father Michel Corbin, a French Jesuit, uh, I took several seminars with him and then chose him as my thesis director. And, of course, I always use the formal vous with him. And when you refer to you, you in the formal way. But, of course, like a lot of the uh, Romance languages, there's a distinction between the formal and the informal. And it was a very important moment when, I think in my third year in France, Corbin gave me the explicit permission, as the French say, to tutoyer, that's to use the the two form, the informal form. Talk about a, a world when you understand the difference between those two and, the, and that, that very personal permission that was given to me. It meant we've established a level of trust and intimacy. To a lesser degree, all this happened in regard to German too. Uh, I, I've always loved the German language. I, I've savored German philosophers and theologians for most of my life. I didn't study the language formally till I took a summer course. I remember at Loyola University. It would have been the summer of 1988 before I went over to Europe to study. I loved it. 
right away. I, it, was, it was German 101, but I loved it right away. And then for three years in Paris, I studied German with a lovely lady named Madame Dupuis. French name. She married a, a Frenchman, but she was German from Frankfurt. She was a teacher at the Goethe Institute in Paris. In the summer of 1990, I did an intensive three-month period with the Goethe Institute in Freiburg in Breisgau. And it was just wonderful. I remember as the German world opened up to me, and just to understand the intricacy of a German sentence, which I know at first is off-putting, but it's like cracking the code. Once you crack the code of how German works, that sentence becomes clear. It, it, it's, it's clarifying. You get something much more deeply. And just those wonderful German words that can stretch for almost an entire line. Now, here's my point, everybody. This little <laughs> walk down memory lane in my study of language. We can learn another culture to some degree through cuisine and dance and folklore and music, etc. But we never truly learn it until we become immersed in its language. We can communicate in a number of ways. Think of people that communicate through gesture, through um, uh, music, etc., but we never really communicate until we have learned a people's language. That's how a world opens up. That's how minds open up. That's how hearts come together. Think of all the poets who try to express their love precisely through very nuanced language. Think of philosophers now that want you to get into their world of meaning. How do they do it? By very intricate language. How often our words can hurt or heal, depending on how they're being used. Language is the means of communication par excellence. How wonderful, therefore, that the principal gift of the Holy Spirit, as we read today, is tongues, its speech, its language, enabling the first disciples to establish heart-to-heart -heart levels of communication with the peoples of the world. Here's what I want you to see. The Holy Spirit himself is nothing but communication. For the Spirit is nothing other than the love that connects the Father and the Son. If we shift the metaphor, he's the breath, that's what spiritus sanctus means, means holy breath, blown back and forth between the Father and the Son. Communication, therefore, is his nature. It's his business. Think of right now as I'm, as it were, breathing these words into the microphone, which are being transformed somehow, don't ask me how, into impulses that you can hear, and I'm thereby communicating with you. It's by a kind of breath that it's happening. That's the Holy Spirit. God, who is love, made a world of deep and abiding interconnectedness. 
What is sin, everybody? And I'll go back down to my German. Our word sin is from the German word Zünde, S-U-N-D-E, with an umlaut over the U, Zünde. That's the root of our word sunder, right? To divide, to divide, that's sin. The opposite of sin is always some kind of communication. What's the privileged vehicle of communication but speech, language, which is why the Holy Spirit identified with speech. Origin, the church father said, ubi divisio ibi peccatum. Where there's division, there's sin, period. Now, go back to the reading from the Acts of the Apostles for today. When the disciples, equipped with their multiple languages, go out to communicate with the many who've gathered for the Jewish feast of Pentecost, they effectively unite the world. As everyone has commented from ancient times till today, it's the undoing of the Tower of Babel. Listen, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya near Cyrene, as well as travelers from Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. What's being described there is a kind of circle around Jerusalem. Those are all the peoples of the world from east to west, north to south, gathered, as it were, in a kind of circle around Jerusalem. They are being communicated with by these disciples who have the gift of speech. What sin has scattered, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Breath, the Holy Speech, precisely through the ministry of the church, is meant to gather. Do you want to feel and exercise the gift of the Holy Spirit? on this Feast of Pentecost, then connect. Reach out. Learn. Move into another world. Communicate. Keep the image, everybody, of that fiery tongue in your mind. That's the Holy Spirit. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Word on Fire. My prayer is that each of us may be on fire with love for God and neighbor. Until next week, I pray that God will bless you and those you love.